glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Would you stand with me, please? Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We'll begin. We're going to cut in on uh, this, this text of Scripture for time's sake. But we begin in verse 12. John says this, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, and as, uh, and as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. He'll go on to tell John to write these things in a book, which, of course, John did. You may be seated. Thank you. Again, as we get this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't misunderstand me, he is still today, though glorified, he is still saving sinful men. His Holy Spirit is present here today and in the heart of every believer and he ministers and works through us. The Lord Jesus Christ works through we who he has saved and given his Holy Spirit to. We are his hands and his feet and his mouth on this earth. But we must understand that he is exalted today in his glorified state. He has returned where he came from. Before man was, was on earth, before there was a heaven and earth, Jesus Christ was. He said, before Abraham was, I am, John eight fifty eight. What we want to see in Revelation 1 today, we've been looking in the Old Testament at shadows of salvation and these pictures we see of Christ and the salvation He would provide. This morning, we go forward. Uh, We're getting a glimpse of how we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a likeness. You'll notice the word like. This is figurative speech. And throughout the book of Revelation, if if we want to understand its figurative speech, we read the context. It says, His eyes were as a flame of fire, like brass. So it's a likeness to help us understand some things about the person of Jesus Christ. We understand this. When the Lord returns, He's coming not back as the Savior, but as the judge. And He will judge mankind. It's so important that we understand this, that He's returning uh, as a judge. The grace of God has been extended. And when you get in the book of Revelation, we get a picture of when that grace is, is, is being cut off in the sense of God begins to deal with man for how He has responded to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in these few verses, we're going to focus on verses 17 and 18. just want to point out some things from this text that we'll, we can go back to who the Lord Jesus Christ is and the account of Him throughout the Scripture leading up to this and be reminded of who He is today, His authority, and what He has accomplished through His death and His resurrection. Again, this morning, any gospel that does not glory in the resurrection and any gospel that excludes the resurrection is no gospel at all. There are those this morning who will celebrate the death of the Lord Jesus, but will teach that He did not physically or bodily raise from the dead. That's false religion. The Bible says that He raised in a body of flesh and bones. He 
ate a honeycomb and with his disciples told them to handle him and see that he had flesh and bones. And so, anyway, having said all that, by the way, I hope you can come back tonight. We'll have another message on the resurrection tonight out of John chapter 11. So I hope you can be here. But if not, uh, let's, let's take heed what we have today. Verse 17, the first thing I want us to see here in Revelation chapter 1 concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the vision that John gets of him uh, is, is his command. He says, and when I saw him, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Throughout uh, Revelation, he's referred to as the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega the last. There is symbolism and fulfillment of prophecy in that. In the book of Isaiah, Jehovah God is referred to, by the way, as the first and the last. If you want a good text of Scripture to show those folks uh, from Kingdom Hall that Jesus Christ is Jehovah God in the flesh. Just go to the book of Isaiah and show them that Jehovah God refers to himself as the first and the last. And you can run right on over here to the book of Revelation and show them that Jesus Christ is the first and the last. They're one and the same. He said, I am the first and I am the last. I want to put this in context. I want us to think about the fact that here's John and he is very familiar with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think there's, there's a reason we need to think about this this morning. If we get... As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we begin to get calloused in our thinking and attitude toward him, one of the purposes of the Bible is to help correct that. We should maintain daily an attitude of the fear of the Lord. Now, I find John here gets a glimpse of the Savior, and he doesn't say, Oh, hey, Jesus. The Bible says he falls on his face is dead. This is someone who walked with Christ. He laid over on his bosom and said, Who is he that betrayeth thee? He was extremely familiar with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if John, who was that familiar in flesh and blood with the Lord Jesus Christ, they went on fishing boats together. He did ministry together. But when he gets a glimpse of the glorified Savior, he falls on his face as dead. You'll hear, uh, and, and I, I, don't, I, want, I want to try to be practical this morning and help us see where I think the Lord would use a message like this and specifically the truth of the resurrection to get our heart's attitude and thinking squared with the Word of God as to where it should be toward our Savior. And there's, there's so much today done in the name of worship that is irreverent. You know what I'm talking about? It's irreverent. It speaks of Jesus as though he is your best buddy who lives a few doors down the street uh, or maybe your your rock and roll partner or something like that. We have worship supposedly that is designed to entertain. It is designed to move the flesh and it's called worship. We have people saying, oh, I saw Jesus and get all excited and and yet what we find is a, a complete irreverence for the things of God. We find it reflected in, in, in the, the music in, in, our, in our assemblies. We find it reflected in how we deport ourselves. We find a casual atmosphere being promoted among church and a casual attitude. You know, I don't believe on the Lord's Day, as John was in the Spirit, after he got a glimpse of the Savior, I don't think there was any casualness left in him. Once he got a true glimpse of Christ and who he is, here's a man who is extremely familiar with Christ who walked on earth in his servant state. But when he got a picture of who Jesus not was, but is, and John knew. How many think John knew doctrine better than us? How many think that John knew the power of Christ more than us? He saw him walk on water. He saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. But when he saw Jesus like this, he's on his face. And by the way, 
I think all of us would enjoy the right hand of the Savior reaching down saying, hey, hey, fear not. I believe you get the fear not when you respond like John responded. When we have a true vision or a true perception of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, our response should be the same. I heard somebody point out one time, you find some of these so-called services where people are being moved upon by God and they fall backwards. They fall backwards. Am I know what I'm talking about? Uh, in the scripture, the only people that ever fell backward before Jesus were the enemies in the Garden of Gethsemane. Only. Every worshiper was on their face at his feet. On their face. And so should we be. When we're on our face, I want you to think about this, because we'll get into the message in just a moment. When, when you fall on your face before another human being, that is a portrait of humility because you've grasped the power of the person you're, you're in, in the presence of. I believe what John realized is you read the description of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just go over this. When we teach through the, the chapter, God willing, we'll make more specific uh, emphasis. I'm trying to decide how much emphasis to place on this this morning, but I just want to read the description again of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he, he is described, uh, the Bible says, as being in the middle of the seven candlesticks, which were seven local New Testament churches that are referenced and written to. But the Bible says his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. This deals with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. White is a picture of purity, his eyes being as a flame of fire, meaning he sees through everything. There's never any fooling the Lord Jesus Christ. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. So this verse of his hair being white like wool and his, as white as snow and his eyes as a flame of fire speaks of his righteousness, his holiness, and his purity, his feet like undefined brass. This deals with his ability to judge. I'm reading these verses, and I think of uh, his feet being as fine brass, and I think of Genesis 3.15, that the heel of the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He's got feet like brass. That polished brass is, is a picture of judgment. It's polished through the flames of adversity, and yet brass in the Bible is always a picture of judgment, of dealing with sin and so forth. And so his feet, uh, as under, like under fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. How many ever stood next to a waterfall, a raging? I know you have. You're from the Northwest. Surely you have. A raging waterfall. How many of you have been close enough that you know what I'm talking about? You have to holler to hear each other. There is something intimidating about that noise. You know why? What what are many waters? How many of you know how much force is behind many waters? You watch a flood and you can't stand in front of it. You know what I'm saying? You're not going to stand in front of the voice of God. It's as many waters. It's, there's, there's tremendous power behind his voice. So it's no wonder John is on his face. And I guess my question is, 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 this really, is this really the perception we maintain of our Savior as we live our lives? Probably not. We get out in a world that preaches a different Jesus. You get out in the world who doesn't even think about him, and it does us good to get in our Bibles and realize, friend, this is who he is right now. Eyes as flames of fire, hair white like wool. His righteousness is untarnished by the wickedness of the world. His judgment is unhindered by the persecution against him. His feet are as brass as in a furnace. Voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. My mind goes to Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword 
piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then the Bible says, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. I said earlier, he doesn't glow when he walked earth, but he does now. He is shining like the sun. He has, uh, this is all a picture of power. Thus, our first point is his command. And as John sees this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, all he can do is fall at his feet. And the Lord Jesus says to him, laying his right hand upon him, fear not. You know, when we fall in reverence and trust and worship at the feet of the Lord Jesus, you have nothing to fear. Those only have to fear who oppose him. Those who reject him. Those who... Stand against him. But he says, fear not. And then he says this, I am, uh, I am the first and the last. We'll make just a couple of points here before we move on. In such, we are reminded this morning that the resurrected Savior, as being commander of heaven and earth, is our creator. When he says, I am the first, what he means is, I'm before all things. I'm the, I am the creator of everything. And then he says, I am the last. The Lord started all of this. And he's going to finish all of it. He says concerning our faith in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, looking unto Jesus, the author uh, and finisher, Hebrews 1, 12, and 2, uh, 12, 1 and 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, uh, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. Uh, let's turn over. Hebrews chapter 12. I've quoted part of it. I want to slow down just a little bit. The author and the finisher of our faith. He is to our faith what he is to all things. The author and the finisher. Again, verse 2, Hebrews 12. I butchered it when I tried to quote it. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse 3. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in his mind. As we consider the fact that Christ is resurrected, he reminds John, I am the first and the last. I just want to give you, this first point is extremely doctrinal. Go to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Just to remind us this morning, this is what the resurrection declares to us. That Jesus Christ was not merely a good example. He was not merely a good teacher. He was not merely... Um, he was not merely a philosopher or any of the things that the world wants to steal him and turn him into. He is our creator. That's what it means when it says, he is the, I am the first. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. What do he say I am? I am the first. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Speaking of his command, the Lord Jesus started all of this. He created everything, and he is the one that will bring it all to a conclusion. Why might this be important in the world in which we live? To remember that he is the first and the last. Let's put ourselves in John's shoes again, shall we? Where was John when he sees this vision? He is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He's alone, not a Christian friend to be found. Uh, Most of his, if not by this time... All of his apostle friends have been martyred. He's the only one that died of old age. They've all been martyred. So we think that our world is wicked, and it is. But you remember that the wicked men in John's day were still responding, trying to snuff out Christianity before it got a start. Rome, uh, uh, the Roman Empire was working vehemently against what uh, the the furtherance of the gospel in so much 
that here's John who believed and knew that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. John had beheld him resurrected from the dead, but John's circumstances did not indicate that. Would you agree? A living Savior, wouldn't you think, if he's living, why am I exiled on the Isle of Patmos and, and here to die, most likely? History tells us John was boiled in oil without it killing him. The Bible does not declare that, but history states it so. The fact of the matter is that John had suffered greatly for the Lord Jesus Christ. It might have been easy for John to look around at his circumstances and say, God is the author, but Satan is the finisher. Would you agree? Christian, we need this this morning. We need to be reminded he is the first and he is the last There's no political party. There's no political system under the control of Satan that you and I have to cowl in fear under and say, Oh, no, we've God's lost control. No, he's in command. He says, I am the first. I am the last. You reckon John needed reminded of this? See, what happens, our circumstances can cause the Lord Jesus Christ to be diminished in our hearts and minds and say, Where is God in all of the mess that's out there? There's filth on every corner. There is denial of the Lord. There's corruption of truth. There are every kind of religion you can think of. And it can look like Satan is having his day. Lord, I remind John, I am the first. And I am the, you know what John saw? The Lord Jesus Christ was as glorified as he ever had been. John being on the Isle of Patmos and the the wicked government that put him there had nothing to do with who Jesus Christ was. He was the same yesterday and today and forever. And I believe this. You and I need reminded of this truth. We're not even on the Isle of Patmos. May I say this? You're going to live for Christ. There are days you're going to be alone in it. And when you're serving Christ alone, it may feel like he's forsaken you or that he's not the powerful God you thought that he was. Remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist had a powerful ministry. Here's a powerful man who preached a powerful message. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And yet John finds himself in prison at the hand of a wicked adulterer who said, I don't like your preaching. And so his adulterous so-called wife said, well, I want him in prison. And so Herod put him in prison and then... She found a way to have John's head lopped off. And while John's in prison waiting for execution, he sends a message to Jesus saying, Are you really the one or do we look for another? Now, why do you think he did that? Had Jesus changed or had John the Baptist's circumstances changed? Now, see, our country's changing. We've lived in a nation that's been so friendly to Christianity, and I'm so grateful for that. And I pray that the door stays open for us to preach the gospel here and in other places. But I concern that as the circumstances around us change, it might skew our view of him. He is still the creator and he is still the one that's going to finish things out. We must remember in in his right hand were seven stars. Those were angels. The Lord Jesus Christ created the devil and he will be his end. We must remember, we mentioned this the other evening, last Sunday night, Our foe is already defeated. His head has already been stomped. It's been crushed. So it doesn't feel that way. That's my very point. How many of us know that perception is not reality? Reality is reality. And what the Word of God reveals of the Lord Jesus Christ is who He is. And this morning, He is still our Creator. And He is the completer of this that He created. He'll bring it all to a good end when it's all said and done. Colossians chapter 1 verse 14. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, 
even the forgiveness of sins, according, uh, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the, of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, that in all things he might have the preeminence. I believe this. There is, there is the great potential for you and I to get our eyes off of who Christ is and onto the condition of our world and our society and lose the reverence and fear and love and trust we ought to have for him. He is in command. He is the creator and he is the completer. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 7 tells us that the world as it is is held in, in, in place and in store by his word, meaning when he says it's done. Uh, I, I watch us as humans scurry around thinking we're controlling things. One of the biggest problems I have with the whole climate, science, whatever, is it takes and puts too much power on man. I'm not saying some of the things they, re, they, they quote are not facts. I'm saying there are men manipulating facts to make men seem like they're God. Now, I'm going to tell you who's in control of the environment ultimately. God. God. And any science that makes man God is no longer science, it's religion. Amen? That's free. All right? Christ is the completer. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. The Bible says um, in verse 2 that you may be, may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with, a fer- with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Who's going to initiate this burning up in judgment? The Lord. It's called the day of the Lord. He tells John, John, fear not. What took John's fear away? Did Jesus say, John, fear not. You'll not have to stay on the Isle of Patmos. I'll change your environment. I'll change your circumstances. John, fear not. Uh, you'll not know any more persecution. John, you know what took John's fear away? He said, John, fear not. I am that I am. I am still in command. Number one, his command. Number two, seen in Revelation 1.18, his conquest. He reminds John why he's in command. The Lord Jesus, here's what happened. Satan, through deception of Eve and the defilement of Adam, introduced sin and death into the human race. 
And Jesus, through truth and obedience to the Father, conquered it. I love how the Bible gives you a true and clear picture of humanity. You want to take an anthropology class? Read your Bible. I'll say that again. You want to take an anthropology class? Read your Bible. You'll not get better anthropology than reading the Scripture and finding why we are the way we are and why humanity is the way it is and why after all the advancements we've made in in technology and in industry, we are more wicked than we've ever been before and the world is not becoming a better place but becoming a more sinful place. Why? Because of sin, but Christ has conquered sin. And what he's reminding John of is, I'm in command because I conquered We must remember today, he has already won the victory. You say, it doesn't look that way. I know, it didn't look that way to John either, did it? You think John felt very victorious as he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos? But it's still a fact, wasn't it? And so then, uh, Revelation 1, verse 18, again. So the end of verse 17, we just, we saw, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. There's a colon there, and he goes on to explain, I am he that liveth. That's his present tense condition. I am he that liveth. But what does he say? And was dead. Now, we've met people that will say, I died seven times on the operating table. What they're saying is, I am he that liveth and was dead. But at some point in time, they won't be able to say that to you. Because death will ultimately win. You and I can sidestep death if God allows us. You and I can maybe, it's, the Bible calls death an appointment. You know what you can do in, with an appointment? You can reschedule it. You can postpone it. But that appointment, you cannot avoid it. Sometimes God allowed, Hezekiah got to postpone death 15 years. God said, well, change your appointment. You were appointed to die at this age, and I've, I've changed it 15 years, and you have to keep the appointment. We all have an appointment with death. We know that. The Lord Jesus Christ lived his entire life on earth knowing he had an appointment with death. That tells us death is not only, it is not only the condemnation of sin, it is the byproduct or consequence of sin. Christ never sinned, yet he died. He had to to pay for our sin. And so uh, let's, let's look at this. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And then the Lord Jesus says, Amen. You want something biblical for, for why should we say amen? Our Lord said it. Hey, when it's a good time to say it, we should too. Amen simply means to say that is truth. It's, it's, it's like saying verily, verily, truth, right, amen. And so he says something and then he amens himself. <laughs> he says, I am he that liveth and was dead and am alive forevermore. Amen. I read this and I thought it's kind of like Selah in the Psalms. You stop and ponder what I just said because it's absolute truth. And so he's saying to John, I have a conquest. I was dead but I am alive. And this deals with a few things. Number one, when he's dealing with death, we know that death is the consequence of the corruption of sin in our world. We know there was no death until Adam and Eve sinned. And then, again, Romans 5 deals with this, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, different places deal with Adam being the introducer of sin into humanity and Christ being the one that dealt with it. But when Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, he is referencing his resurrection and the fact that the sin of man caused his death. Romans 5, 8, uh, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 and 6, 
but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Adam introduced, Jesus took away. And the point would be this, in his conquest over death that he references here, he's dealing with the fact that he conquered the corruption of sin. He said, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Go, if you would, uh, to a, a few places. If you want to follow, I'm going to go as quickly as I can. If you want to follow along, fine. If not, you may want to note them and look at them later. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The only way to conquer the corruption of sin is through the, the purity of righteousness. Remember his white hair and his eyes as a flame of fire. When he says, I am alive, I'm, I am alive uh, and, and live forevermore. I was dead. He is referencing the fact that he took the penalty for our sin yet without ever tasting the corruption of it uh, himself. I, I seek to say Christ Jesus came into the world and conquered what you and I cannot. You and I cannot conquer sin. The Bible says we're under the law of sin and death. That's what Paul describes so aptly in Romans chapter 7 when he says, the things that I would, I do not, and the things that I would not, that I do. He said, I, I concede to the fact, I'm paraphrasing, I concede to the fact there is a law in me that even when I want to do right, I can't, and when I don't want to do wrong, I do. Jesus never said that. He didn't say the things that I would, I do not, and the things that I would not, I do. He said the things that I would, I do, and the things I would not, I do not, because he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without. And he is reminding John, I am the first and the last. I am he that was dead, and I'm alive, and I'm alive forevermore. Amen. He is reminding John, I've conquered sin. Conquer the corruption of sin through His holy, perfect, sinless living. May we be reminded today the reason Jesus walked out of a tomb is because He had the power to, because sin never touched Him in the sense of His commission of it. The Bible says again, 521, He knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15, He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says, In Him is no sin. 1 John 3.5 says, He did no sin. He's telling us about Christ. He is the conqueror over the corruption of sin. So there are those that say, right, so we need to emulate him. I meet people all the time and say, well, you know, I, you, you, how do you go to heaven? How do you, how do you have your sins forgiven? Well, you've got to be like Jesus. Next logical question is, well, how are you doing it that? How successful are you? May I ask you this? Since you got saved, how many of you have made it? God has made it through his dealings in your life. His objective and yours to be like Christ. And you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. How are you doing? Are you, you there yet? I'm not. Paul said, I've not apprehended. I've not attained yet. He said, I'm not telling you I've arrived. Philippians chapter 3. You can read it. That's exactly what he's talking about. I have not yet attained the sinless body, the sinless perfection. But that's what I'm looking forward to and that's what I'm living toward, knowing that's what's coming. My point is this. Christ did and His coming out of the tomb is the evidence that He's not a mere man. He conquered the corruption of sin. Number two, He conquered the, conquered the, the consequence of sin, which is, of course, death. He conquered death by it couldn't, the fact He couldn't hold Him. I just want to read you. Let, we'll let the Bible do the preaching. Acts chapter 2. I love this verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Do you realize it was impossible for the Lord Jesus to stay dead? 
as much as it's impossible for us not to die in this body of flesh, flesh and blood should not inherit the kingdom of God, it is impossible for him to have stayed dead because of his victory over sin. Acts chapter 2, verse 24, speaking of the Lord Jesus in verse 23, says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, killed him, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. The word of God says, and Peter preaching here says, it was not possible for him to remain in the tomb because he is the first and the last, because he has conquered the corruption of sin through his own righteousness. He has conquered the consequence and the condemnation of sin through his death. His righteous life makes him the acceptable sacrifice. His substitutional death in our place, he took the death that we so deserve. And so, not possible that death should hold him. Romans chapter 6, verse 9. Romans chapter 6, verse 9. The Bible says, Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Again, can we put this in context of Revelation 1? What was the, the Roman government trying to do with Christ? Snuff his name out. Is our culture doing the same? Friend, I do not live in fear of extinction of Christianity. It's impossible. It's impossible. You know why? Because he's the first and the last. Because his resurrection is not a myth. Because it's not a philosophy. It's not a crutch. It's a fact. He's living today. He'll defend his own name. The Bible says he will build his church. For your own notes, you might want to jot down Isaiah 25, 8. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 57. He says in verse 57, But thanks be unto God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That victory is speaking specifically. The verses prior said, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? How many know that many people today are living their lives not in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but by fear of death? Their lives are governed by their fear of death. I want to, and I don't believe we need to be morbid. We shouldn't, there's something natural. God puts it in us to want to live and survive. I'm not talking about that. But he does not want us to fear death. Why? Because if you are trusting in Christ, death is nothing more than a shadow for you to pass through. The Christian doesn't die, friend. We just live somewhere else. We exit our body and we live with the Lord. To be absent from the body, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, is to be present with the Lord. To depart and be with Christ is far better, Paul said, speaking of death. But by that we realize, here's John facing the literal possibility of death on the Isle of Patmos. And the Lord Jesus is reminding him, John, I conquered that. I conquered what caused death, sin. And I've conquered death. He's conquered not only death, he conquered death and hell. The Bible tells us here in verse 18, he holds the keys of death and of hell. Christ holds the keys. We think the devil holds the keys to hell. I got something to say. He does not. Satan does not have power to cast into hell today. He is not the governor of hell. God is. Truth of it. We need to be reminded of that today. So Christ's conquest is over the corruption of sin, the consequence of sin, which is death, the condemnation of sin, which is hell. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 36. John 3, 36, a well-known verse to us. The Bible says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And so then we see John is reminded, as we are this morning, of his command. He's the first and the last. 
his conquest. Back to Revelation chapter 1, he said, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. As we see that phrase, alive forevermore, this reminds us of his capability. Because of his command, he's the first and last, our creator, and he is the one that will complete it all. Because he's conquered sin and death and hell, and he is alive forevermore, that speaks of his capability. This is what gives you and I the boldness, if you're saved this morning, to go tell someone else about who Jesus Christ is and with absolute confidence assure them on the authority of God's word, if you'll trust in Jesus Christ, he'll forgive your sins and give you eternal life because he lives to do it. Boldness in preaching the gospel is directly attached to confidence in the fact that he's living. He's not dead. I, I, love, I love meeting with men that are incarcerated and when they get to the point where they are desperate and they want, and that's very rare, where they're desperate enough to truly want to be changed, but sometimes you hear that tone of somebody saying, I am sick of what I am and I just wish I could get things, they like the word turned around. And I like to remind them, you don't need turned around, you need to become a different person. And then be able to say, and if you would truly and genuinely believe the word of God, put your trust in Jesus Christ, he will literally make you a new person. And know without a hesitation of doubt that if they'll trust, he'll transform. How can you do how can we know? Because he's living. He is alive, not just in the pages of Scripture, he's alive forevermore. This deals with his power to save and his promise to save. Look at Hebrews chapter seven as we deal with his capability as attached to his resurrection. One of the things that the book of Hebrews does, it's a commentary on the Old Testament. And it compares sacrifices to the Lord Jesus Christ. It compares the office of the priesthood to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it references how the priest would minister and would have to first sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people and that the priest couldn't continue because he died. So Aaron, didn't, he didn't get to stay the priest. His, his son, Eliezer, became the priest. And then Phinehas became the priest. And because they were sinners, they died. But this morning, you know why we don't have a priesthood in a Baptist church? Because we have a priest. And he's never going to die. We don't have to worry about, "Uh uh-oh, Jesus died. Now how do we get to God? No, he liveth forever. So the Bible says concerning uh, the Lord and those comparison of those priests, says in verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 7, uh, let's back up to verse 22, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, or many of them, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, we use the word capability for the next three words, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. It means completely, fully, and entirely. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Why? Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The word intercession is used over and over and over relating to our salvation. First Timothy 2.5 calls it a mediator. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The only way we can come to God is through Jesus Christ. I meet people and they say, well, I, I'm on good terms with God. I've believed in Him since I was a child I, or as long as I can remember. I pray all the time. One must understand, you do not access God outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus has to represent you in the court of heaven or you'll be condemned. We'll be judged on our own merits and that's not going to be good. But he lives to intercede for those who come to God by him. Those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ say, I want 
a fellowship with God. I have offended God. I have broken the laws of my Creator. I have sinned. I deserve the judge to judge me, but I believe that you already took my judgment and I'm asking you to save me. I believe with all my heart the Lord Jesus Christ says, Father, this is one of mine. Whatever words is he uses, he goes and he says, Today, Nevin Neal appealed to me for the forgiveness of his sins, Father, and I'm asking you to wipe his sins out for my sake. He intercedes for me. God didn't wipe my sins out because I'm nice. God didn't wipe away my sins and wash away my sins just because he just gets a kick out of doing it. No, he did so on his own righteousness. God in law and in mercy says, the law is you've transgressed, you must die. Jesus said, I'll die for them. And he did. And then he lives for us to intercede. So when a person calls on Christ, Christ advocates for us. That's 1 John 2. He advocates for us. He goes to the Father and advocates. And His righteousness gets imparted to us in the very eyes of God. What a miracle! But all only possible because He's living. The living Savior today, the moment, I believe with all my heart, the moment a person calls on the name of the Lord, Lord Jesus, I want to be right. I want my sins forgiven. He intercedes and that forgiveness is granted and He saves to the uttermost. Those that come unto God by Him. That coming is a, is a, that is attached word for faith. You're willing to approach God in humility and faith. You're willing to come to God, but you're coming by Jesus Christ. John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. There's never been one person who turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and says, I, I want you as my Savior. He said, Nope. No, him that cometh to me, I will no wise cast out. And we praise God for that truth. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest under your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The promise of Christ repeatedly is we come to God by coming to him, for he is God, is he not? But his capability is because he's alive forevermore, he has power to save to the uttermost, and his promise is to save those that come by faith. And so then, we saw that in John three thirty six. Finally, his control, verse 18. We've seen his command, his conquest, his capability, and his control. He says, I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. We read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, that death and hell are cast in the lake of fire. Who does that? He does. And I've already said this, so I don't want to be redundant, but today, Satan is not the manager of hell. He will spend time there. The Bible says he'll be cast a thousand years in the bottomless pit, and then one day he'll be cast eternally in the lake of fire. But the Lord Jesus, through his resurrection, got the keys of death and hell. Meaning, when you approach him, he unlocks the chain of death from you, and it no longer is your master. Look, if you would, with me at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're about to wrap up. Hebrews chapter 2. I meet people that are unbelievers that claim they don't fear death. They're either desensitized in their conscience or they're being deceitful. <laughs> the Bible says it's the fear of death that governs our life. Well, who can unlock that key so death is no longer your, your governing factor? And the fear of death. The fear of death. We live our lives. You know what? Many of our decisions, even financially, are about trying to postpone death. Trying, trying to 
to put away its effects on our lives. And we are easily... You want, to, you want a picture of how easily mankind is manipulated by the fear of death? Do a case study on COVID-19. You know what was used to manipulate the masses? And I'm not, I'm not saying everybody was manipulating, but do you know there was manipulation? Fear. Fear of what? Death. Death. We must... I, I go back, even, even if we look at the event of, of, of 9-11. And after that, you know what was constantly brought up? Well, we, we have to... Terrorists love this. Satan is the chief terrorist. He's called the king of terrors. I terrify you and say, I'm going to kill you. Well, I got news for you. He doesn't hold the key of death. The Lord does. So I'm going to kill you. So if you don't do what I say, I'll kill you. If you don't do what I want, I'll kill you. Through fear of death, he manipulates the individual. He manipulates the masses. And the Christian today, friend, is not to live under the fear of death. Our Lord holds the key. John, the, the revelator, is an example of that. How many times had, the, had, he been, had he been tried to be killed and they had not succeeded? It wasn't his time. The Lord Jesus holds the keys. And so uh, the point is, they're in his hand. He conquered those and, and obtained those through his death and resurrection. Uh, so he possesses them and they're in his power and he will ultimately prevail because he has prevailed. Hebrews 2, uh, 4, 13. Again and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. So who had the power of death before Christ's death? Well, the devil did. He introduced it through sin. But then it says this, and deliver them, verse 15, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. You know how false religion thrives today? When the bondage he's talking about is bondage to the law. The law said if you don't do everything God says, you'll die because of sin. The strength of sin is the law, is it not? And so people through fear of death would try to align with God's law and fail... And therefore Christ comes on the scene, us having been condemned by transgression against the law. Today, false religion picks up that old system. What God says today is, you know what? He doesn't say, if you don't live for me, you'll die. He says, I've given you life, now live for me. It's different. Grace starts with life, not death. The law, all the law can give you is death because you break it and you die. But Christ came and He fulfilled the law and He died according to the law and He lives according to His own righteousness. And you and I don't live every day saying, Oh no, oh no, if I don't do everything right, look, once you've placed your trust in Christ, we have life and we have life abundant. And we live from the assurance of life, not the fear of death. The Lord Jesus lays His hand on John and says, Fear not. I've got the keys of death and hell. I'm in control. Not your adversary. Friend, if you and I can get a hold of the fact that we're alive, if you're saved this morning because we're in Him, we're alive forevermore. What can the world do to us? Kill us? Graduate us, but they can't kill us. Amen? Well, Paul could say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm here preaching, great, Christ is exalted. If they kill me, they just send me to Him. You know why we lack boldness today? Fear. And I think we need to get a hold of the power of the resurrection. He's living and therefore we're living if we're believers in Him. He was assuring John of and he said, I'm, I have prevailed. He's prevailed. And so Romans chapter 6 verse 90, and we read it earlier. Romans chapter 6 verse 9. 
How often we live fearing defeat when we already have the victory. Romans chapter 6, verse 9. We read it earlier, but it says, Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. The Lord Jesus would remind the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, Fear not them which destroy the body, and after that have no more they can do. Fear him which after have destroyed the body hath power to cast into hell. What he's reminding is, you fear God. You fear the Lord. Have reverence for him because he's got the keys. Amen? Revelation 20, verse 14. Let's go ahead and read that and we'll be concluding here. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. It says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. We know who cast them there, the one who holds the keys. We must be reminded today because Christ is living, no matter what the world around us looks like, if it makes it look like sin is still in control, if it makes it look like Satan is still in control, Christ is on his throne this morning and no one's going to pull him back down. He's Alpha and Omega. He's beginning and the end. He was dead, but he's alive and he's alive forevermore. And he's got the keys of death and hell. And you and I can live boldly from that truth this morning that our Savior, our Lord, the one we trust, is already the victor. Amen? In closing, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just in closing, the word victory is used over and over So, so much more that could be preached and said about the truth that he's living today that applies to us practically and how we overcome temptation and all these things. But how many times does fear get a hold of us because we've gotten our eyes off of who he is, we've gotten our eyes on what the world is, and I pray this morning that we're reminded of who he is as the risen Savior today. First Corinthians 15, verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin will bring grief and guilt. Sin stings us to kill us, but the risen Savior has removed the sting. You know what? The risen Savior says, death is not my master anymore. I'll meet it and pass beyond it. I believe you're living this morning. You're saved. Death is merely, it is merely like you're just leaving your body. It is not a permanent thing for you and I. It is simply a shadow. Therefore, The risen Christ takes the sting out of death, takes the victory out of the grave. The grave is not our final victor. Christ has won over the grave, and therefore in him we have won as well.